This is section 44 of The Gilded Age. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gilded Age, a tale of today by Mark Twain and C. D. Warner, chapter 44. It's easy enough for another fellow to talk, said Harry despondingly after he had put Philip in possession of his view of the case. It's easy enough to say, give her up, if you don't care for her. What am I going to do to give her up? It seemed to Harry that it was a situation requiring some active measures. He couldn't realize that he had fallen hopelessly in love without some rights accruing to him for the possession of the object of his passion. Quiet resignation under relinquishment of anything he wanted was not in his line, and when it appeared to him that his surrender of Laura would be the withdrawal of the one barrier that kept her from ruin, it was unreasonable to expect that he could see how to give her up. Harry had the most buoyant confidence in his own project, always. He saw everything connected with himself in a large way and in rosy lines. This predominance of the imagination over the judgment gave that appearance of exaggeration to his conversation and to his communications with regard to himself, which sometimes conveyed the impression that he was not speaking the truth. His acquaintances had been known to say that they invariably allowed a half for shrinkage in his statements, and held the other half under advisement for confirmation. Philip, in this case, could not tell from Harry's story exactly how much encouragement Laura had given him, nor what hopes he might justly have of winning her. He had never seen him desponding before. The brag appeared to be all taken out of him, and his airy manner only asserted itself now and then in a comical imitation of its old self. Philip wanted time to look about him before he decided what to do. He was not familiar with Washington, and it was difficult to adjust his feelings and perceptions to its peculiarities. Coming out of the sweet sanity of the Bolton household, this was by contrast the maddest vanity fair one could conceive. It seemed to him a feverish, unhealthy atmosphere in which lunacy would be easily developed. He fancied that everybody attached to himself an exaggerated importance from the fact of being at the national capital, the center of political influence, the fountain of patronage, preferment, jobs, and opportunities. People were introduced to each other as from this or that state, not from cities or towns, and this gave a largeness to their representative feeling. All the women talked politics as naturally and glibly as they talk fashion or literature elsewhere. There was always some exciting topic at the capital, or some huge slander was rising up, like a miasmic exhalation from the Potomac, threatening to settle no one knew exactly where. Every other person was an aspirant for a place, or, if he had one, for a better place, or more pay. Almost every other one had some claim or interest or remedy to urge. Even the women were all advocates for the advancement of some person, and they violently espoused or denounced this or that measure, as it would affect some relative, acquaintance, or friend. Love, travel, even death itself waited on the chances of the dies daily thrown in the two houses, and the committee-rooms there. If the measure went through, love could afford to ripen into marriage, and longing for foreign travel would have fruition and it must have been only eternal hope springing in the breast that kept alive numerous old claimants 
who for years and years had besieged the doors of Congress, and who looked as if they needed not so much an appropriation of money as six feet of ground. And those who stood so long waiting for success to bring them death were usually those who had a just claim. Representing states, and talking of national and even international affairs as familiarly as neighbors at home talk of poor crops and the extravagance of their ministers, was likely at first to impose upon Philip as to the importance of the people gathered here. There was a little newspaper editor from Phil's native town, the assistant on a Pendletonian weekly, who made his little annual joke about the first egg laid on our table, and who was the menial of every tradesman in the village, and under bonds to him for frequent puffs, except the undertaker, about whose employment he was recklessly facetious. In Washington he was an important man, correspondent and clerk of two House committees, a worker in politics, and a confident critic of every woman and every man in Washington. He would be a consul, no doubt, by and by, at some foreign port of the language of which he was ignorant, though if ignorance of language were a qualification he might have been a consul at home. His easy familiarity with great men was beautiful to see, and when Philip learned what a tremendous underground influence this little ignoramus had, he no longer wondered at the queer appointments and the queerer legislation. Philip was not long in discovering that people in Washington did not differ much from other people. They had the same meanness, generosities, and tastes. A Washington boarding-house had the odor of a boarding-house the world over. Colonel Sellers was as unchanged as any one, Philip saw, whom he had known elsewhere. Washington appeared to be the native element of this man. His pretensions were equal to any he encountered there. He saw nothing in its society that equaled that of Hawkeye. He sat down to no table that could not be unfavorably contrasted with his own at home. The most airy scheme inflated in the hot air of the capital only reached in magnitude some of his lesser fancies, the by-play of his constructive imagination. "'The country is getting along very well,' he said to Philip. "'But our public men are too timid. What we want is more money. I've told Boutwell so. Talk about basing the currency on gold. You might as well base it on pork. Gold is only one product.' base it on everything. You've got to do something for the West. How am I to move my crops? We must have improvements. Grant's got the idea. We want a canal from the James River to the Mississippi. Government ought to build it." It was difficult to get the Colonel off from these large themes when he was once started, but Philip brought the conversation round to Laura and her reputation in the city. "'No,' he said. "'I haven't noticed much. We've been so busy about this university. It will make Laura rich with the rest of us, and she has done nearly as much as if she were a man. She has great talent, and will make a big match. I see the foreign ministers and that sort after her. Yes, there is talk, always will be, about a pretty woman so much in public as she is. Tough stories come to me, but I put em away. Tain't likely one of Cy Hawkins' children would do that for she is the same as a child of his. I told her, though, to go slow," added the Colonel, as if that mysterious admonition from him would set everything right. "'Do you know anything about a Colonel Selby?' "'Know all about him. Fine fellow. But he's got a wife, 
and I told him as a friend he'd better shear off from Laura. I reckon he thought better of it and did. But Philip was not long in learning the truth. Courted as Laura was by a certain class, and still admitted into society, that nevertheless buzzed with disreputable stories about her, she had lost character with the best people. Her intimacy with Selby was open gossip, and there were winks and thrustings of the tongue in any group of men when she passed by. It was clear enough that Harry's delusion must be broken up, and that no such feeble obstacle as his passion could interpose would turn Laura from her fate. Philip determined to see her, and put himself in possession of the truth, as he suspected it, in order to show Harry his folly. Laura, after her last conversation with Harry, had a new sense of her position. She had noticed, before the signs of a change in manner towards her, a little less respect, perhaps, from men, and an avoidance by women. She had attributed this latter partly to jealousy of her, for no one is willing to acknowledge a fault in himself when a more agreeable motive can be found for the estrangement of his acquaintances. But now, if society had turned on her, she would defy it. It was not in her nature to shrink. She knew she had been wronged, and she knew that she had no remedy. What she heard of Colonel Selby's proposed departure alarmed her more than anything else, and she calmly determined that if he was deceiving her the second time, it should be the last. Let society finish the tragedy if it liked. She was indifferent what came after. At the first opportunity she charged Selby with his intention to abandon her. He unblushingly denied it. He had not thought of going to Europe. He had only been amusing himself with Seller's schemes. He swore that as soon as she succeeded with her bill, he would fly with her to any part of the world. She did not quite believe him, for she saw that he feared her, and she began to suspect that his were the protestations of a coward to gain time. But she showed him no doubts. She only watched his movements day by day, and always held herself ready to act promptly. When Philip came into the presence of this attractive woman, he could not realize that she was the subject of all the scandal he had heard. She received him with quite the old Hawkeye openness and cordiality, and fell to talking at once of their little acquaintance there, and it seemed impossible that he could ever say to her what he had come determined to say. Such a man as Philip has only one standard by which to judge women. Laura recognized that fact, no doubt. The better part of her woman's nature saw it. Such a man might, years ago, not now, have changed her nature, and made the issue of her life so different, even after her cruel abandonment. She had a dim feeling of this, and she would like now to stand well with him. The spark of truth and honor that was left in her was elicited by his presence. It was this influence that governed her conduct in this interview. "'I have come,' said Philip, in his direct manner, "'from my friend Mr. Brierly. You are not ignorant of his feelings towards you?' "'Perhaps not.' "'But perhaps you do not know, you who have so much admiration, how sincere and overmastering his love is for you.' Philip would not have spoken so plainly if he had in mind anything except to draw from Laura something that would end Harry's passion. "'And is sincere love so rare, Mr. Sterling?' asked Laura, moving her foot a little, and speaking with a shade of sarcasm. "'Perhaps not in Washington,' replied Philip, tempted into a similar tone. "'Excuse my bluntness,' he continued, "'but would the knowledge of his love, would his devotion, make any difference to you in your Washington life?' "'In respect to what?' 
asked Laura quickly. "'Well, to others. I won't equivocate. Uh, to Colonel Selby.' Laura's face flushed with anger or shame. She looked steadily at Philip and began, "'But what right, sir?' "'By the right of friendship,' interrupted Philip stoutly. "'It may matter little to you. It is everything to him. He has a quixotic notion that you would turn back from what is before you for his sake.' "'You cannot be ignorant of what all the city is talking of,' Philip said this determinedly and with some bitterness. It was a full minute before Laura spoke. Both had risen, Philip as if to go, and Laura in suppressed excitement. When she spoke, her voice was very unsteady, and she looked down. "'Yes, I know. I perfectly understand what you mean. Mr. Brierly is nothing, simply nothing. He is a moth singed, that is all.' the trifler with women thought he was a wasp i have no pity for him not the least you may tell him not to make a fool of himself and to keep away i say this on your account not his you are not like him it is enough for me that you want it so mr sterling she continued looking up and there were tears in her eyes that contradicted the hardness of her language you might not pity him if you knew my history perhaps you would not wonder at some things you hear no it is useless to ask me why it must be so you can't make a life over society wouldn't let you if you would and mine must be lived as it is there sir i am not offended but it is useless for you to say anything more philip went away with his heart lightened about harry but profoundly saddened by the glimpse of what this woman might have been he told harry all that was necessary of the conversation she was bent on going her own way he had not the ghost of a chance he was a fool she had said for thinking he had and harry accepted it meekly and made up his own mind that philip didn't know much about women End of chapter forty four